Hello, and welcome to PCB Chat, where we talk with experts across the printed circuit design, manufacturing, and electronic supply chain fields. I'm Mike Buto, president of PCEA. The Printed Circuit Board Association of America, or PCBAA, was founded in 2021 to advance U.S. domestic production of PCBs and base materials. My guest today is Travis Kelly, president and chief executive of Isola, the materials developer and chairman of the PCBAA. Travis, Happy New Year, and welcome back to PCB Chat. Uh, thank you, Mike, and Happy New, New Year to you as well. Always a pleasure to be back. You've launched a weekly newsletter with updates on the industry happenings. One recent piece that was linked to was titled, What Do Small Companies Need to Know About the CHIPS Act? Since most of the U.S. PCB market could be characterized as small companies, what do you think those firms need to know about H.R. 7677, the Supporting American Printed Circuit Boards Act? Yeah, so I think that's a, an exciting piece of legislation that was introduced on the floor last year. Uh, it's a bipartisan bill. So it has uh, Blake Moore, for, uh, the Republican from Utah, that supports it, as well as Anna Ishu, the Democrat from California. So it's great that it's a bipartisan uh, bill. It's also... Uh, very impactful that it's probably the first time a, the, the term printed circuit board was ever mentioned in, in Congress. Um, and it shows the momentum that the entire ecosystem is, is gaining uh, outside of uh, semiconductors. You know, obviously the focus um, for the last several years has been on semiconductors. The fact that now we, that uh, the printed circuit board um, domestic industry has a bill they can point to is uh, very important. So ultimately, what we want people to know, both you know, medium size, small size, and large size companies, is that this bill will be uh, put forward again in this uh, this year. Uh, we need to garner further support and have other sponsors of the bill. And then ultimately, uh, we will need a Senate companion bill to push it through. It's extremely important. It helps uh, build up the domestic industry and create that secure and re resilient supply chain that we've discussed before, Mike. So ultimately, what we want people to know as well is there's really two components. One is generating a pull strategy. So in this bill, there is a tax credit, 25% to the OEM. So not to the actual fabricator or assembler or the material uh, suppliers, it's actually to the OEM. So for every American-made uh, printed circuit board that the OEM acquires, they receive a 25% tax credit, which is significant. The second piece of the legislation that's important is a $3 billion investment into the industry itself. And that would be bifurcated by research and development, brick and mortar, um, learning, so STEM, on-the-job training. So you really have two uh, significant aspects of that bill that we want everyone to know about within the domestic industry so they can support it and they can have their representatives of Congress uh, support it as well. Uh, you just mentioned this companion bill. Are, are you suggesting that the, uh, the, the, the PCB bill would have to um, be tied to a, a larger piece of legislation in order to pull it through? To get something passed, we need not only the, the, the House of Representatives, Congress to pass it, but also a Senate companion bill that supports it as well. And then it can get approved by the administration. So that's really the, what we're looking for is making sure that we have both chambers uh, uh, approving the bill, uh, which I, I think, you know, ultimately it. It's extremely important that it does get passed, and I think it makes a lot of sense. 
you know, you're going to hear, you know, arguments um, around the the industry. You know, do we need to have a resilient and secure supply chain for everything? And, and you could make an argument that you, you should. Um, we're not myopic. We being the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, we're not myopic in our view. We understand it's a global economy. It's always going to be a global economy. But for those end segments that we've discussed before, Mike, like your critical infrastructure, like 5G, obviously aerospace and defense, uh, medical, uh, as well as banking, you do you know, as a nation want to have that secure and resilient supply chain. So I think that's why you'll see both support at the House and at the Senate level for uh, legislation like this. Does Congress get the critical infrastructure aspect to all this? I mean, do they understand it? I, I think they're beginning to. Our message uh, at the PCBAA and some of our sister and, and uh, I'll say um, partners like USPAE and IPC, we've done a lot of work educating and advocating. Uh, and we are seeing it resonate because all the different organizations are getting called into Washington almost on a frequent basis to continue that messaging. So when you take semiconductors, for example, uh, we support the CHIPS Act, but as you know, building the wafers in the United States doesn't necessarily solve the root cause because the IC substrates or the high-density interconnects, um, you know, advanced packaging, that still happens overseas. So as we start discussing this with, with members, uh, it, it's resonating that in order to really create that secure and resilient supply chain, it's an ecosystem. It's, it's not just the wafers and it's not just packaging. It's, it's the printed circuit boards too that, you know, the, the chips uh, have to be packaged onto the boards. And, and it's really addressing that holistic view of what it takes to ensure that you have that resilient supply chain as opposed to just fixing pieces on the fringes. It has to be a holistic approach. And that does and that is gaining a momentum. Now, you identified that with the new Congress seated, H.R. 7677 would have to be reintroduced. Have you received uh, any insight from you know, any of the original sponsors indicating that they plan to do so? We, we have. And, I, you know, obviously, I think it's going to be um, really at the top of the agenda. I think we'll hear more about it within the next month or two. Uh, obviously, the codification will change as HR 7677. That, that number will change, but the bill will still exist, obviously. Um, you know, and now, especially now that we have a speaker, I think, you know, legislative actions will, will move forward um, as opposed to being delayed. Any insight as to whether any of the incoming uh, congressmen and congresswomen um, are uh, going to be supportive of this? We, so we've actually spent a fair amount of time on the Hill, we being the PCBAA, myself and the president. And now we have a new executive director, uh, David Shield, who, who has joined the organization. He's actually been part of it for quite some time. So it's a very smooth transition. Um, so we will be spending more time actually starting next week. We're back up on the Hill again pushing the legislation through. We have met with numerous representatives of Congress who have told us they're going to support the bill. We don't see that. Um, actually, we, we don't see any more. We don't see us losing any momentum. Um, so I think going back, you know, over the next several months, we'll continue to great gain those co-sponsors. And once again, if you look at the membership of, of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, it's billions and billions of dollars of economics because of the membership base and the number of states that are represented by some of our largest 
companies in the organization. So there's a lot of momentum too. As we all know, numbers speak in Washington and, and the overall economic impact speaks in Washington. The PCBAA, I believe, has a really nice representation of the U.S. and the different, um, I'll say, uh, the significance that we play in the overall industry. To my knowledge, the original legislation didn't really detail the roadmap. It kind of left that to the industry to establish. It provided the funding mechanism, but it was kind of skimpy on the details as to what actually was going to happen on the ground. What is PCBAA doing in this regard to kind of flesh that out? Yeah, so, you know, ultimately, what we're spending a lot of our time on is how do you transform? Originally, you need the investment. So you, you, need, a, you need a piece of legislation that can boost the industry. Um, so that's really the, the $3 billion investment. And then you also need that pull strategy where you're receiving, um, the OEMs receiving some type of tax credit, which will level the playing field. We do know that uh, competition in overseas uh, primarily in Asia, is difficult for the U.S. to compete against because a lot of these different industries are subsidized. So one thing that's extremely important is that this will level the playing field. But at the same time, where a lot of companies are struggling from a PCB and PCBA standpoint, is it's hard to write that investment thesis without really understanding the demand signal. So if you were just to look at defense, that's roughly 3% of global market share. And it would be very difficult for most PCB uh, domestic companies to write a capital check to invest arguably, let's say, $200 million into launching a brick and mortar facility that can not only scale up with increased demand, but also have uh, the the higher technology elements um, that would be needed to compete. So what we're really looking for is not only a bill that can help prop up the industry and create that pull strategy, but also looking for government influence as well as private industry in terms of identifying those key market segments that we want to have a resilient and secure supply chain for. Because if you were to agree, if all of us were to agree that that is aerospace and defense, medical, banking, uh, infrastructure like 5G and so on, that's roughly 26% of the global market share. So now you're creating a sustainable domestic industry. So, Mike, I think that's a, an absolutely critical point. So as we, you know, what are we doing to educate people? What are we doing to discuss the bill? The bill is extremely important as a catalyst, but also when you get into the discussion on a sustainable industry, that's what we're really focused on is also ensuring that we can provide our members with some type of, I'll say, clarity around a demand signal to allow them to go to their boards of directors or their investment committees and write that capital expenditure for 100 or $200 million. Let's talk about that $3 billion figure for a moment. You know, how is that actually allocated? You, know, the, you mentioned the, uh, the, the tax incentives. Um, is that built into that $3 billion, or is the $3 billion cash that would be coming from the U.S. government uh, to be invested in, in U.S. manufacturing? Yeah, it's bifurcated. So the $3 billion is a standalone 
the 25% tax credit is something separate from that. So the bill really has those two uh, separate components. The $3 billion is truly an investment. It hasn't been, I'll say, allocated relative to it should be you know 20% going to R&D. It should be 30% going into new technologies. It's really an earmark saying, look, based on the industry and where it needs to go, based on the amount, you know, there's only 140, roughly 140 PCB, PCBA shops left in America. Here's an amount that makes sense to really kickstart the domestic industry. We know, you know, for with high density interconnects and everything else, the 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 amounts, the amount of density now that will be required not only on packaging but a printed circuit board. That technology exists in Asia, but we have to bring it here. And once again, it's very difficult to, I'll say the trailblazer and invest that type of capital if you don't really know that there will be demand there. So that's one thing that we really have to work through. And I think that's one reason the bill is so important too, by having that $3 billion earmarked for the industry, because ultimately we need to prove out technology and what we know is needed today will not be what is needed five years from now. So it's that constant investment in uh, in capital that is required to make sure that you stay on the cutting edge and, and constantly innovate. $3 billion would be equal to almost the entirety of the U.S. domestic PCB market. Is that funding earmarked for a single year or would it be spread out over a number of years? It would have to be spread out over a number of years because if you can think too, I mean, w- one thing we're going to run into is, and I always say this, when you offshore your manufacturing know-how, you do offshore a lot of the technological know-how. So when you think, you know, I always use the example, sig- signal integrity and engineers, but I think most of us in manufacturing know it's very difficult to find mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, chemical engineers. So when you think uh, about the DNA and the skill sets that will be required and the skill sets that we also offshored overseas and bringing that back, it's a multi-year investment because ultimately a lot of the, uh, and I shouldn't say a lot, but there obviously will be some uh, allocation to STEM. There'll be some allocation of workforce development because right now to find a lot of these positions, you know, companies have to uh, register for an H-1B visa and bring so that the signal integrity engineers in, in country. And that's, that's difficult. So I, it's going to be a multi-year investment. That makes sense to me. You know, having participated several times in the IPC Capitol Hill days, the prevailing message from Congress was always jobs, jobs, jobs. You know, how many jobs in my district will will this uh, create? And you know, so you know, you've now addressed sort of how these investments in the PCB industry would take into account the manpower needs. I mean, I've talked with Matt Kelly of IPC about this, and I know there's a focus on more smart or lights out style factories. But of course, we aren't even close to being ready for that. So, you know, understanding what will happen in the meantime, I think, is is really a big piece of that puzzle. Um, yeah, you know, you just touched on two points <laughs> that I'm gonna I'm gonna footstomp. First and foremost, for the domestic U.S. industry to be competitive, you do have to look for smart factories and automation. Right. But that is not a silver bullet. I, I attend a lot of meetings and for numerous uh, companies, automation is definitely needed. But when you automate factories or you go to the smart factory, you're increasing the skill level that you need to help run those facilities. So people always think that if it takes 100, um, you know, uh, 100 people to run a facility, if you automate it, you're down to 30. 
that may be the case, but those 30, that skill set you need in that 30 is much different than what you need with the 100. Because those 30 are going to be controls engineers, are going to be mechanical engineers, because now you have a lot of machines and robots. And my point being that, yes, we would have to figure out a way to be competitive across the global landscape in order to do that, to compete with countries that have uh, less costly labor, we would need to automate. However, the good thing is, and the one point I like to make is as we automate factories, as we continue to become more efficient, the workforce of America will also increase in terms of skill set because you're going to have to have controls engineers. You're going to have to have a very high, uh, high level of skill to run these factories. And I think the country will benefit from that. Um, because you're going to have to invest not only in the schooling system, but on the job training and so on and so forth. So I actually think it's a very, very big benefit as you get that, you know, very knowledgeable workforce put together. You know, I think you'll see a lot of different industries benefit from that. Now, that takes a lot of time. And, you know, we're, we're speaking in, uh, you know, uh, philosophies, but ultimately, you know, that this is a, you know, a decade investment. But you can really see where we have to go uh, as a country in order to be competitive in those end segments. You know, the first time I saw AGVs on the floor was actually at the Isola plant in uh, Duren, Germany, uh, back in um, 2001. <laughs> They're still there. Yeah, right. But I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating, right? How, how slowly the rollout has been worldwide. And, you know, just to the point, uh, you know, I interviewed folks from Lacroix, the, the French EMS company in, uh, in late December, and one of the things that, you know, France has, has identified, you know, much as the way that many countries are, they've identified electronics uh, and manufacturing as being critical to the future of the country. And, you know, the amount of investment that the, uh, the, the French government is pouring into individual companies, uh, you know, in order for them to prove out some of these technologies, you know, Lacroix has been the beneficiary of, of several million dollars in direct government subsidies. You, you, you go through the plant now and it's very automated with these you know, two-story high uh, inventory towers and you know, robots and AGVs all over the place. The, the question that, that comes up then is just how exactly would something like that, if indeed that's what's going to happen here, and I might be jumping ahead, but how exactly would that work? Would individual companies apply for grants? Would multiple companies work together to prove out a technology and then share in the benefit of that with the government underwriting some of the cost? Uh, you know, what's, what's the projected model or has that even been bandied about yet? Well, it's definitely being discussed and you actually hit on two points. If I think what we're going to see is you're going to have individual companies that may request a grant from the government to develop certain technology or, you know, address a problem uh, that needs to be resolved. I think also uh, a lot a lot of work is being done right now to your last point relative to, okay. Do you see several companies and companies can be, you know, PCB companies. It can be material science companies like Isola. It can even be OEMs uh, working with the government to develop, you know, a center of excellence 
to develop technology, I think you're spot on. And then should it be a proven technology? Should it work sharing that know-how with the individual companies? So a lot, I, I, there no, I don't think anyone has their voice around specifically, let's go, you know, let's do option A versus option B. But all those options are being discussed as we speak today. Um, because that's one thing that we have to figure out is what is the best path forward? You know, you, is it bifurcating $3 billion amongst numerous companies? Or is it looking at, you know, really defining the problem statement first and foremost? What are we trying to accomplish? Defining that problem statement, investing in in that in, in, in fixing that problem statement or finding solutions, and then spreading that know-how to the other companies. So you're you're spot on, Mike, and I, I don't have a I definitely don't have a specific answer on how it's going to. And it normally I always say you know the truth is somewhere in the middle. I'm sure it'll be a hybrid approach, but um, those options are being discussed. Would you expect that U.S. based manufacturers that are foreign owned? Um, you know, we've had a couple companies in our uh, in the U.S. just recently. A couple fabricators um, are in the process of being acquired by a, you know a North American, but not a U.S. based company. Would you expect that companies like that would still be eligible for these types of grants? Yeah, you know, I I think that's a great question. I shouldn't opine because I, ultimately you never know how the rules and regulations will be written. I know this is speculation, but do you think that? The process that's being used for the semiconductor industry will probably play out for PCBs as well. When you look at Samsung, TMSAC, and people like those companies that are uh, benefiting from you know the U.S. Uh, investment, I, I would think so. I mean, just you know, looking at it from a, a business standpoint, you know, once you have the the foundries coming, like Intel, like TSMC, you know, they're going to require an ecosystem. Right. And you would you would I would hate to speculate, but I, I do believe you will see um, some of the the ecosystem move to the United States. So materials suppliers, printed circuit board uh, fabricators and assemblers and the like. Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't think it has to be 100 percent U.S. I think what you're probably going to see is growth in North America in general. So I think you probably will see um companies domiciling in Mexico as well as Canada. Um, so the, I think the jury's still out, but you would have to believe with the amount of investment coming from the semiconductor uh, companies that you're going to see people pig, you know, piggyback on, on, on those movements. In your conversations with Congress, does the investment in other countries ever come up? I mean, I'm looking at uh, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, countries that really didn't scratch the surface of the PCB market, you know, 10 years ago that are now seeing investment that is much greater than what we've seen in North America. And the size of those markets is uh, pretty impressive as well, relative, again, to U.S., not necessarily to, compared to Taiwan or China, but relative to, to other uh, regions. It does come up because obviously, once again, when the day ends, you're, you know, the, the CEOs and the boards that are overseeing these companies need to make the right economic decisions. And right now, you're right, there, because of a lot of geopolitical issues, you're seeing Southeast Asia open up. Not that it was ever closed, but you're seeing it open up a lot more. And you're seeing um, 
definitely a lot. I shouldn't say a lot because that's a generalization, but you are seeing companies that are either domiciled in China or Taiwan now looking at building brick and mortar in Malaysia or in Thailand or in Vietnam. And a lot of that too is you, these companies receive good incentives to do so. Um, Obviously I think that's one reason that, you know, HR 7677 is so important because in order for the U S to compete, uh, the government will have to look at investments to attract some of that industry. Travis, based on the logos on the PCBA website, you're now up to 18 corporate members. As your membership grows, how do you think it will affect the association's ability to maintain consensus and focus? Yeah, that's always the discussion because we want to make sure we we you know we have um, like I said we we have other organizations. Um, that we do a lot of work with, uh, like, like uh, USPAE and IPC, but each organization is different because we are laser focused on the printed circuit board assemblers, printed circuit board fabricators, material science companies, and that vision we don't want to waver from. We want to make sure that we, when we're um, on the hill, that we are truly focused on this subset of the overall ecosystem and a, a very important subset. But we have to keep our voice around what we're trying to accomplish. So a lot of the times when we meet with new members, prospective members, we are very candid in our vision and what we're trying to accomplish. And if that doesn't align with uh, potential members, then, you know, that that's OK. Um, but we definitely want to make sure our message is very clear. And I think that's one reason we've had so many successes, be it with the National Defense Authorization Act having the new legislation uh, introduced on the floor of 7677, you know, for a relatively new organization like the PCBAA, we've shown that we can get consequential things done in a very quick, uh, very short amount of time. One of the things that you have gotten done, right, is, as you mentioned a little while ago, you've named your first executive director. Tell our listeners a little bit about David Shield and why he's the right person for the job. Yeah, so it, it, that's a great question. Um, when we first formulated and, came, and uh, came up with the PCBAA, there was five founding members. And in order to really grow the membership base, we wanted to have a really strong presence as it relates to social media. We wanted to professionalize the organization because we had to stand it up really from, from nothing, from scratch. And luckily, we met David at the very beginning. Uh, he was... Uh, came from a defense prime, uh, understands Washington inside and out, and really helped us build a, a nice PR team that could give us the social presence and in, in social media, you know, develop the website and really help us get our voice around the mission and vision uh, and strategic objectives for the organization. So he was really at the, the ground level with us. So as the organization grew and he played a big role in that, he would also attend numerous meetings uh, on the Hill. So it's a very easy transition. Uh, he's well-respected uh, in Washington, and it makes a lot of sense because he understands how to get things done. And as you probably know, Mike, Washington is very complex. And, <laughs> and, and you know, we have very strong uh, lobbying uh, we, you know, with David's, um, I'll say, you know, vision as well as you know, the, the, the president, Will Marsh, um, I, I do, you know, Will and I are both volunteers uh, for these roles. 
Um, I, as you know, I, I have a day job and, and so does Will Marsh. Um, so David can literally focus on the PCBAA and take us to that next uh, evolution, right? I, I like to say that, you know, over the last two years, we've got a lot of consequential things done. We were on, you know, version one. Now David's moving us to version two and then version three and so on and so forth. So we're very excited to have him. And Travis, why don't you mention the PCBAA website and how people would find out more information if they want to become a corporate member or, or get involved? Yeah, that's great. So if you go to PCBAA.org, you will see our website and you can inquire about membership. Uh, we are structuring in such a way you can be, you know, obviously a you can have a corporate membership and there's different tiers depending on how engaged you want to be. Um, engagement means if you want to be a gold member, you actually have an opportunity to sit on the board of the PCBAA. Uh, it rotates every two years. You know, there's silver memberships, bronze memberships, and then we have individuals. There's uh, consultants uh, that have been with the industry for 30 plus years that are now members. So we have personal membership as well, um, where people can stay involved, uh, stay connected. We send out a weekly newsletter. Obviously, we do monthly calls. Uh, with our lobbying teams and our PR teams. So if you really want to stay abreast of what's happening in Washington as it relates to microelectronics, as it relates to what we're uh, accomplishing, it, it, it's great because we have different tiers that can suit almost anyone's needs. Is there anything else that you think uh, we should share with our listeners before we wrap? Well, I just think 2023 is going to be extremely important. I think the I think the momentum is going to going to still be there. You know, obviously there's a lot happening in the world. You're seeing you know China, uh, China relax their COVID nineteen policies, so that will open up uh, China quite a quite a fair bit. But they're still having a large COVID nineteen outbreak, uh, which is hurting companies over there. You know, obviously the ener energy crisis in Europe. Uh, is going to be with us for some time, spe specifically certain countries like Germany. So I think there's still going to be geopolitical and macroeconomic issues. What does all that mean? That means the the resiliency of the supply chain, I don't believe, will uh, improve greatly in 2023. We'll see bits and pieces. You know, I don't think you're going to have uh, ships slow steaming because you're going to see a demand drop if we go into a global recession. So you're going to hit that inflection point where although things are going smoothly, let's say uh, around the world, you're also going to have less demand because things are more expensive. But ultimately, I think 2023 is going to be a challenging year. And I think this is really where, you know, the PCBAA can make a name for itself on really working to resolve some of these supply chain issues because we're going to be stuck with them for some time. Our guest today has been Travis Kelly, president and chief executive of Isola and the chairman of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. For PCB Chat, this is Mike Buto. Have a nice day. Mm -hmm.